Kia ora and welcome to the Stronger Dads Collective podcast, where we aim to help dads be stronger versions of themselves as fathers, people, and in their athletic pursuits. I'm your host, Hayden Pritchard, and you can find me at hjp underscore stronger dads on Instagram, and you can learn more about me at hjpmethod.co.nz. Before you finish listening today, be sure to rate and subscribe on the platform you're listening to. Right, let's get into today's episode. Kia and welcome to episode 51 of the Stronger Dads Collective podcast. We have surpassed 50, um, and the last time I spoke to our guest today, we were on number 49, I believe, so it hasn't been long between um, yarns, but that is absolutely fine um, by me, and hopefully that's fine by our guest as well. So um, today we are joined by Dr. Matthew Barnes, and we're basically going to try and follow up from, I guess, where we got to in our last discussion. We had intended to get both Matt's alcohol research, which you'll be able to go back and listen to um, in episode 49, um, as well as uh, the recovery stuff, but we didn't get there. Um, we spent too much time talking about alcohol um, and didn't get into kind of talking about recovery. So that's going to be our focus of today. But before we get into that, Matt, how are you going and how's your summer holiday been? I'm um, good, thanks, Hayden. Uh, it's been too short. I think it's gone really, really, really quickly. Um, I guess I was thinking about it the other day why it's gone so quickly. Most summers I have a project to do. Like last summer, I painted pretty much the whole house and interior. I think the summer before we had another big project. This year we haven't had anything to do specifically. So, um, time's just flying by yeah I, I don't know whether that's an indication of the monotony of having a project so it feels like it goes forever or I, I don't know but no it's been good we've just sort of stuck around and um, I've just been working on our lifestyle block cutting down pine trees and planting natives and and trying not to think too much I suppose so didn't get a, didn't get down south then haven't haven't got down south no we're not going away um, and both kids now are, are working at McDonald's in town so um, we're sort of shuttling them backwards and forwards to their shifts because they've picked up as much work as they can yeah. over the break. So um, just being a taxi service and in between pottering around the section, which is actually really, really nice. Um, you know, it doesn't have any, I don't know, any responsibility with it really. You just go and, and do stuff for the sake of doing it rather than what you might do in, in, in a job situation. So it's been really good. Yeah. 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 I was saying to you before this that we've got, um, I need to stain the, the timber out the front and back or oil sorry the timber out the front and the back but i discovered that my ladder is too short um so i've been buying ladders and uh hopefully you hopefully there'll be an episode 52 because uh, it's quite a tall ladder um so i'm gonna have to take safety precautions uh to make sure that i that, that we get back for episode 52 um but it's quite funny because you go away and if you go away over summer like we left i think i finished work on the 20 second or something like that um and we were gone no not 22nd was it 24th i don't know somewhere around there anyway no 22nd eh? because monday was the christmas this year wasn't it uh, I, think, I, think... I think christmas was a monday yes um, so yes yeah, so i finished on the friday went away on the um saturday and then we were were away right up until thursday last week so we've only been home for like three or three to five days something like that um and then we got hit with covid so i mean i do as much or get out and go around you know because we don't want to be spreading it we're we're trying to be good citizens even though it's not mandatory to keep yourself away from everyone these days um but yeah it's it's like you feel like you kind of got nothing done so i came home and the the lawns were long and there's all these little jobs that i i need to be doing but i don't know you just feel like you don't really have the time so it's probably quite nice to for you to have spent 
summer at home and especially because you've got a lifestyle block you've probably got a bit of work that always needs doing yeah there's always plenty yeah because we had our pine trees our pine plantation cut down three years ago and now i think every pine cone that's even fallen on our, our section has decided to turn itself into a, a new pine tree so <laughs> there, there's lots of various sized pine trees to come out and unfortunately <laughs> that means um wading through chest high gorse in places and um scaling some pretty steep terrain but that's that's okay it's all good fitness um yeah i keep yeah. telling myself anyway yeah <laughs> i think i ran past your road the other week because i was going out old west road and i'm pretty sure you're somewhere out back there i don't know where it is but i was like i'm pretty sure that you live somewhere around here so i was running on that road because it's quite nice out there because you get a bit of undulation it's yes. pretty you know you're actually sort of tucked down a little bit so the wind almost disappears from what you'd get up the top where i actually yep. live um it's quite nice i was like it's probably quite nice living out that way that's lovely it really is the wind is probably the only the only issue i suppose because we're so exposed now we've got no forests around us ah true yeah last winter we lost our greenhouse it blew away um <laughs> is and it a glass one that was sort of a tunnel a plastic oh, tunnel yeah. house type thing but um that's yeah, it's good you know you, you take the that's a small price to pay for the views <laughs> and the you know the escape escapism that you get by living in the country i suppose yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. anyway matt we should probably actually get into um talking yeah, about recovery because i don't know how interested people are in uh what we do with our spare time <laughs> but hey um <laughs> who knows maybe that's what people you know listen for i don't know but um we'll we'll see if the right you know if the listening stops at this stage of the podcast then I'll, I'll know that i need to spend more time talking about what people do um yeah. outside of the, <laughs> outside of athletic stuff or science stuff mm. <laughs> um but so we're going to talk a little bit today um about recovery you know recovery from exercise muscle damage all those sorts of things um and probably i guess the best place to start is probably a little bit of like a how would you define recovery and what would you i guess what are the what do we mean when we're talking about recovery? Because I think a lot of people would probably mean a lot of different things um, when they bring up that word recovery. But from your perspective, when we're talking about recovery today, what are the sorts of things that we're thinking about? Well, I guess the main thing for me is is around function. Um, you know, that's that's probably the the prime and in all of the research that I've done, that would be the primary outcome, I suppose. How mm. how is someone functioning um, after a bout of exercise, and whether that's um you know team sport game or match um whether it's a um a, a, some other form of competition or whether it's a training session i think the most important thing is how are you tracking back to to nearly full uh, full function yeah um you know we can we can look at other other measures in the blood or um a, a, a wide variety of other things i suppose but often if if function's fine, it doesn't really matter too much what's happening elsewhere, yeah. um, because you can you can often get up and, and train or push yourself hard, depending on your mental state, I suppose. Mm. Um, so so I guess for me, um, recovery is um, yeah getting back close to possibly not all the way to full full function, but yeah. close to close to being able to function properly so that you can train um, appropriately or, or play again i suppose yeah so that could be things like if you're you know if we're looking at a specific measure maybe you know someone could sprint you know a 40 meter in a certain time they were back 
to that time or very very close to that time or if they could lift x amount of weight or you know do a knee extension to x you know yeah. newtons or whatever it might have been like that that is able to be done again so they might have had whatever they did at your pretest, you know or training you know and they were able to train at a certain level the next day they're a bit tired they can't they can't get back up to that or they're fatigued or you know whatever they're not recovered but then over time they get back to that same level of performance so it's focusing on the outcome isn't it rather than the things that might dictate that outcome yeah and, and that's the best place to start i suppose if you're thinking about sort of from a research perspective you want to see if you know how that performance outcome is influenced to start with and then you might go and look at a mechanism mm. you know I, I i think there's a there's a lot of studies and, and that's it's fine they'll look at both but you know if there's no change in in recovery um then it doesn't really matter what the mechanism is you know there's no point yeah, taking muscle yeah. biopsies or something if if you can actually still perform you know close to 100 percent yeah um, yeah and i guess that's that's you know for anyone you know that's an everyday athlete or you know even a even a professional athlete all that you really care is can you do what you could do before <laughs> and if you can then that's fine like you know if your ck might still be a little bit high you're probably not that worried about that because you're still able to sprint well and perform and get the outcomes you're after yeah well, that's an i mean ck is an interesting one and um you, you know that that's a sign of muscle damage and we've got some practitioners and researchers who suggest that it's a good marker of recovery so you know instead of measuring muscle function they might look at what's happening to ck ck in the blood to creating kinase in the blood and use that to determine when their athletes go back to a normal training schedule but mm -hmm. we know the relationship between creating kinase and muscle function isn't particularly good yeah and therefore you might be you may be holding your athletes back um mm longer than they need to be and therefore you're missing out on on some time that you could be providing some sort of um, important stimulus yeah yeah and when we think about like the causes of you know or, or the, the the reason we may need to recover i guess i'm kind of trying to figure out how to say that i guess because we're not it's not always just going to be fatigue right it can be muscle damage as you mentioned yep. but like what are i guess if we're thinking of both strength training and aerobic training what would be some of the sort of the key reasons why people wouldn't be recovered? Like what what are the things that we do in training or we do in competition that would cause us to be not recovered? Like how do we end up damaged or how do we end up fatigued? And what does that mm. look like for an aerobic athlete and say a strength or power athlete? Is there a difference there? And what might those sort of things entail? It's probably, probably quite a big question, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a massive area, recovery and and fatigue as well. And you can they kind of interact or overlap mm -hmm. i suppose fatigue i would think is probably more an acute type of thing you know usually yeah. you know fatigue is defined by again a, a reduction in um expected outcome so yeah. can you produce as much power or speed or force for example and usually particularly in short-term um events just resting is going to be enough to offset that fatigue so yeah. you know we know that from resistance exercise right you do reps to fatigue um you have a rest um if you don't rest long enough then you're not going to be able to produce the same number of reps the next time but if you rep, yeah. rest a bit longer you, you're going to be able to so fatigue is is very reversible um it may last you know um could last a couple of days depending on on where that fatigue 
occurs, I suppose. Yeah. Peripheral fatigue occurring at the muscle is probably related to um, chemical changes within the muscle. Yeah. And therefore, again, resting, maybe doing active recovery, um, perhaps some nutritional interventions might aid that short-term fatigue. And then you've got sort of central fatigue that may last a couple of days that um, occurs after resistance exercise and after cardio type exercise. Um, I think probably cardio, uh, you know, well, not cardio, but endurance exercise seems to potentially have a, have a large effect on that sort of central fatigue. Yeah. Um, and that's changes in your central nervous system's ability to generate a, a an impulse or a signal to to produce that force. Yeah. Um, but again, that's reversible with rest. You yeah. Know, just, just have a rest, and it will it will go away basically. Yeah. Um, so that's and fatigue. Yeah. Does does that get impacted by the intensity of exercise then as well? Like if I'm doing strength training and say um, I do either you know a large amount of sets, you know, like lots of hard sets in a session. Um, or I do a really heavy session um, with our strength training. Do we see similar types of fatigue, or does one cause a different fatigue to the other? What's kind of the, I guess, consensus there? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. Um, I don't know, I forgot the answer. Um, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a while since I've looked at the the set, certainly around central fatigue side of things. Yeah. Um, but I think the the research suggests that it's that higher that higher intensity. Yeah. demand being placed on the central nervous system that's going to lead to more central fatigue. lead to greater central fatigue yeah 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 uh, and then the volume is probably more likely to impact the peripheral like muscle damage type scenario yeah the the volume's going to yeah have a have an effect on the on the muscle itself i think yeah um you know and would, yeah, it, would that be a similar thing with aerobic activity like if i'm going out and running and i'm doing some really hard intervals as opposed to doing like a two or three hour long run, one's probably going to be more wear and tear and the other one's going to be more, you know, central or mental or whatever you want to call it. But that's sort of, you know, like you're just generally fatigued and you kind of can't be bothered, I guess, doing another session. Yeah, I think that the short, you know, a high intensity interval session is going to be more centrally demanding. You know, motor unit recruitment's going to be higher, um, albeit for a shorter period of time. Um, the metabolic demand will be quite different. I suppose yeah. you're relying on that anaerobic metabolism, um, yeah. whereas you, your longer duration stuff. I mean, eventually you'll start to recruit your your type two fibers and and your fast motor units, yeah. etc. Um, but that's going to be more metabolically demanding, and that's probably where things like glycogen, you know, replenishment and loading come into come into play. Yeah, perhaps yeah. a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, and I know I know there's no real simple answers to a lot of this stuff. Like it's sort of, you know, you could probably read online a really simple explanation for what happens with each, but I think the kind of accuracy of that, you know, in terms of what's really happening physiologically, um, it's probably a lot more complicated than I think you'd read on an everyday website where, you know, it might say this causes this fatigue and this causes this fatigue. You know, I think it's not as clear cut as that anyway, or as you might make it out to be. Um, but I guess if we know that, training hard or you know or training long can cause this fatigue and can cause this muscle damage type scenario um and that sort of leads to us needing to recover from exercise mm. um that sort of led to i think especially at the moment a whole like plethora of different things that people say will help to speed this physiological process up so from 
from I guess that initial overview of like recovery and what what does it involve mm. is there sort of a general pathway that the body follows to recover from a bout of exercise or um you know things that I guess have to happen like what what are some of those things and and what does that kind of I guess look like if you're able to summarize that a little bit yeah, I, I guess if we think about the stresses being placed on the body, so we've got that initial fatigue that we've just talked about, and that might last for hours, probably. Yeah. Um, but once that kind of dissipates, it's probably not much of an issue. But then we've got yeah. what's happening, you know, in the in the muscle itself, I suppose, from a, a, reco- a recovery point of view. Um, initially, you're going to see um, changes in your in your hormones. You know, you'll get a decrease, probably potentially get a decrease in testosterone for a while, get an elevation in cortisol, um, which is perfectly normal. You know, yeah. you, you need these processes to recover. You know, yeah. cortisol, its its role is to liberate energy to help you recover. So, you know, it's freeing up fatty acids, it's mm-hmm. freeing up um, glucose from from the stores in the body to help all of these recovery processes occur. Um, yeah. You know, and... I think metabolic, so we can we can think about recovery from a metabolic perspective and, and then also perhaps from a, a muscle damage perspective. So metabolically, um, we want to rehydrate, you know, particularly if you're going to be performing soon after your initial bout of exercise. So yeah, you can think about, you know, a hard training session, you know, a couple of days or a day before a competition or something like that. If you do that sort of thing, you're going to want to rehydrate. Um, if you're not competing or you don't have to worry about that time scale, then you're probably going to rehydrate naturally anyway over over a period of time. And the same goes for carbohydrate. You know, if you're going to be competing or training hard in subsequent sessions soon after that initial session, then you're going to want to prioritize taking on board a, a large amount of carbohydrate. Yeah. You know. So this um, could be something like if you're doing, you know, like a people might do like a double day session or something like that where they might do you know, a cardio in the morning and a strength in the afternoon or the other way around, whatever it is. Is that where this would be particularly important? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where you've got things back to back over, yeah. maybe, you know, think about what's happening over the next 24 hours, for example. Yeah. Um, you're going to prioritize um, carbohydrate intake within that first probably hour to start with and then maintain high carbohydrate intake um, over over the next you know, good few hours. And that's just going to speed up replenishment of glycogen so that you've got a full tank when it comes to exercise again. Now, if you're not, if there's no hurry, then your normal diet's probably going to do that. It's just going to take a little bit longer, particularly if you've you've got your macros right and, you know, you're following a sensible athletic diet and not, you know, know, cutting out carbs or other macronutrients. um, Yeah. You know, so that, that would obviously have a limiting effect on things. Um, so that's, that's quite, and then of course, um, in terms of recovery for pro, uh, for, for the muscle alongside your, your carbohydrate, they recommend, uh, you know, at least sort of 20 grams of good quality protein in that first hour or so to, to help recovery as well. Um, and the, so, so again, that'd be more particularly important if you got something coming up soon, right? Like, you know, if you had. If you had exercise, you know, a day or two later, you know, you, you're kind of, you know, an everyday exerciser or, or trainer rather than being, um, you know, a high level athlete. Would that be less important that first period of time? Like as long as you're getting what you need within that day? Yeah, I think the timing's not as important as we used to think, you yeah. know, the, the so-called anabolic window. 
yeah, particularly yeah. around protein intake. Um, yeah. But I, I think there's no harm. In, I remember in, trying to trying to smash a protein shake. You know, like I was like, I've got to get it within the 30 minutes of the gym, or I've pretty much wasted my gym session. Like you know, I'm I'm really anabolic now. I need to go yeah. <laughs> smash yeah. this protein shake. Like quick, where is it? You know, like yeah. <laughs> have it in the bag ready to go. You probably had one before you trained and maybe some yeah. intra, intra workout amino acids and, you know, just massive, yeah. Thinking overload that you can optimize and, everything. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Thinking suddenly your shirt's going to be too small for you because <laughs> of the massive adaptations you've got from one training session. Here I am 20 years later. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that timing's not that important, but I think it's still probably worthwhile mm. having a good amount of, of simple carbohydrates and protein soon after it's also not that hard to do not, you know like if difficult. you plan well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it, it doesn't have to be a shake or anything you know fancy mm. you know a, a sandwich with tuna or chicken or cheese or yeah. glass of big glass of milk and you know we'll probably just about do it actually a glass of milk yeah. looks pretty good um so i think that irrespective of the type of training um and the situation scenario that you're in in terms of what's coming up i think that's just good good practice and it, it would be yeah. it would fall within all of the recommendations for nutritional practices around yeah. you know training um so i think that's that would if you did that um you'd you'd take care of that sort of initial metabolic recovery probably yeah. if you hydrate you replenish your, your carbs uh, or you take carbs on board to replenish glycogen and you get a little bit of protein in your system yeah you're starting off on the right the right foot basically um now, I guess if the muscle's damaged, then um, then there's a bit more potentially going on. Although that said, there's always an inflammatory response. There's always something happening to a greater or lesser extent post-exercise. Um, yeah. You know, driven by various um, various mechanisms. But a lot of that um, that research and those modalities that you sort of alluded to before are targeted towards muscle damage, delayed mm. onset of muscle soreness, swelling, all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. it's, a ma it's a massive industry, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, what basically what happens when you when you overload the muscle and it's whether you you get this from running a 10K or a marathon, you know, it's the yeah. eccentric loading where the muscle um, contracts, lengthens under tension, um, or during a squat when you're lowering, you know, or bicep curl lowering the load with mm. gravity. Um, the muscles lengthening, um, you're getting these micro micro tears in the in the muscle basically, um, and what that happens it, it causes two things I guess we can we can th think about is initial primary muscle damage which is caused by the mechanical overload of the muscle. Yeah. Um, so this is this is the tearing um, that occurs to to the muscle cell itself and the the muscle fiber. This is we call this primary muscle damage, and this will this will cause um, some initial decrease in muscle function. It can cause damage to connective tissue as well. So um, that in itself will have an, an effect on your ability to produce force because force is produced within the muscle and then sort of transferred laterally mm -hmm. to the connective tissue, and then the connective tissue obviously all connects together to join a, te a tendon and creates that movement around the joint. So if there's damage to the connective tissue, then force transmission is decreased. Yeah, force might be normal within the muscle, but if the transmission isn't right, then you're not going to be as strong as, as, yeah. as you should be. Um, 
And then you you also get alterations to the way the the muscle handles the signal coming through from the brain. So the the chemical signals um, or the chemical changes in result of that um, signal aren't aren't as efficient. So yeah. the signal itself may still be the same as normal. There may not be any change in that, but the way that's translated into force is is different at the muscle. Yeah. Um, so that's that that initial damage, and that causes some an inflammatory response, I suppose. Um, part of that response brings about um, delayed onset of muscle soreness, which yeah. anybody who's done strenuous exercise will be familiar with. Um, yeah. Probably this time of year, where people might start to experience it again, having taken quite a chunk of time off time off training mm -hmm. and eating too much, and you know not worrying about the training, hit the gym. And suddenly you're you're sore by doing just what you were used to. So mm. um, so that that's caused by an increase in in a whole heap a number of different proteins within the muscle, um, and they stimulate the pain sensors within the muscle so that you get this dull kind of soreness um, that we know as as DOMS basically. Um, and I, and I guess one thing to probably touch on there as well, and one thing that I think people forget about with pain, like there's a purpose to pain, eh? Like pain isn't kind of just there to be a nuisance. Like it's a protective yep. mechanism, right? So what your body's essentially trying to do by actually making you feel this pain um, is stop doing the thing you were doing because you're going to make it worse. Yeah, <laughs> would, that be, would that be fair? Absolutely, yeah. So um, the, the, the sensations of pain obviously feed back into your brain. So if you try to use the muscle as you normally would, it's going to hurt. That's going to send yeah. a signal back to the brain. That's going to basically tell the brain, stop the silliness, um, and yeah. the force production will be decreased. So you'll see a, a decrease in central drive, essentially yeah. as a relate um, caused by the way the muscle f sort of feels. Right. So yeah. again, it's protective. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can you can overcome that if you've got a strong yeah. mindset. Yeah, yeah. You can push through it. You know, and that's where. Um, the relationship between pain and muscle function isn't that clear either because yeah, yeah. you can overcome it. You know, we've all <laughs> trained through or played through sensations of pain yeah. um, to a, to 100% of our, our ability. So, um, and there's, I, I time, think, there's times where that's, you know, a non-negotiable, right? If you've got like, I don't know, a sevens tournament or something where you've got games over a couple of days or whatever, you're probably going to be sore on day two after yeah. day one. But if you want to, you know, score the try or win or whatever, you're going to have to sprint. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and and pain is such an individual thing. Mm -hmm. You know, when we when we measure pain, it's subjective. It's specific to that individual. There's no point comparing pain scores between people because what we try to do is we try to um, anchor any pain score to a, a maximal experience of pain that someone might have. And that's going to differ for everybody. You know, you think, you say, you know, out of 10, what's the most, a 10 is the most painful thing you've ever had happen. Now, if you've lived in a bubble and you've got really protective parents and they've never let you do anything in your life and the worst thing that's happened is you stubbed your toe, um, <laughs> that's not a very big 10, is it, you know? Um, yeah. Whereas you take someone... I don't know, Lance Armstrong is a good example. I mean, irrespective of, you know, what he put into himself, ability to push himself beyond belief, um, just testicular cancer is probably going to be fairly painful as well. So, you know, and then females going through childbirth, 
you know, their 10 yeah, is going to be yeah, a lot different yeah. to our 10. So, um, so that's, that's why we think the man flu is so bad, Matt. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's very, it's very subjective and, and we can push through those mm. sensations of pain. So again, from a research perspective, you wouldn't just look at pain from yeah. a recovery point of view and, and studies do, but they're pretty limited. You know, yeah. you yeah. think, so, so what? You're a bit yeah, sore. Yeah. Whoop de do. Well, that's where it comes back to what you said about recovery at the start, right? Pain, pain might be an indicator of something, just like you mentioned, CK might be. But if it's not associated back to your ability to actually produce the force or have the function, then does it matter that much? I mean, I, you could probably argue that pain does um, yeah. for some stuff, right? Because eventually, if it keeps hurting, it keeps hurting, it keeps hurting. You're probably going to stop. Um, but if it's a short-term event or it's a short-term exercise that you're doing, and you can just push through that. Yep. It, it might not be a big deal from a performance perspective. Yeah. I think it's, as you said before, it's there to tell you something. And I think listening to that pain, particularly around the timing of training, yeah. you know, if you've done, I don't know, hamstrings always for me damage really well, you know, yeah. good mornings, remaining yeah. deadlifts, anything with that significant eccentric component, um, glute ham raise, anything like that, I'll be sore for quite a long time. Yeah. And to me, that's kind of telling me, the muscle's probably not ready to be to be hammered again, um, and that yeah, might be yeah. 72 hours. And that's the thing: pain's going to peak at about between the individual differences. Besides, um, you know, possibly 48 to 72 hours. So, yeah. you know, and we we kind of know from thinking about resistance exercise now, in terms of the frequency of training, large muscle groups are probably about 70 every 72 two hours. So it probably yeah. coincides when that muscle soreness is coming down. It's yeah. probably coinciding with the uh, the changes in inflammation and things as well, potentially. So, so it's almost probably... like the body is ready, you know, at that yeah. stage again. So that's when you could hit it, if you know, yeah. if that's the type of approach you're following. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it kind of will probably all aligns um, fairly nicely. Um, but then, yeah. So, so we've got coming back to that muscle damage. We've got that primary mm. muscle damage, and I guess in terms of a, a modality to aid that side of things, we're probably looking at things that would specifically reduce delayed onset of muscle soreness yeah so painkillers things that specifically target maybe the central nervous system um reduce um reduce swelling because we know mm -hmm. that swelling is associated with pain so um th yeah things possibly like um compression um we'll probably talk about ice in a little bit but um you know medications perhaps that may mm -hmm. specifically reduce those sensations of pain, which allow you to push on. Um, but the other thing that's happening is is um, is a fairly significant, and depending on the level of damage and the intensity of exercise, is a, a fairly significant inflammatory response, mm. which um, which is caused by um, by the release of calcium, I suppose. Within um, so muscle damage itself has a, has a an effect on on calcium in lots of different ways but an increase in calcium triggers this inflammatory response and then we get um proteins inflammatory proteins coming to the site of of the damage and their initial role is to clean up that site so yeah they can identify damaged tissue so where they've got tears and they'll start essentially eating away at that and that mm. that's the first phase and that's an essential phase for recovery and then adaptation um, so that sounds that sounds really bad. Like you know, like yeah. oh, it comes and it eats my muscle. Like that sounds like a 
like a negative thing, right? And it sounds like yeah. something, oh, we should be stopping that. Well, yeah, we should, we should. Logically, logically, that's sort of what you think, right? But actually, yeah. that's just part of your recovery process. Like, that's something that has to happen for you to get stronger and better and rebuild. It, it does. It does have to happen. It's essential. Um, and I, I guess whether it happens, the the magnitude at which that happens, or the the intensity of the the inflammatory response, and the timing, I suppose, are the two things that might influence how you recover after exercise. Yeah. Um, you know, so they're they're coming in, they're breaking down this tissue. But what also happens is, and these things don't have a brain. They don't think. They don't think. Oh, there's some damaged tissue. There's some healthy tissue. So they end up. Um, having an effect on healthy tissue is around, around that injured site. So we term, term the secondary muscle damage. So yeah. this inflammatory response, this cleanup, it's, it's having a, a wider effect than just cleaning up the damaged tissue. Um, and then we may see, so this contributes to the decrease in force production that we see over the probably 24 to 48 hours after mm. strenuous exercise. Um, once that's all cleaned up, then we sort of switch from this um, pro-inflammatory situation to an anti-inflammatory where the system's basically saying, that's enough, we've done our job, now let's switch into um, repair repair and, um, and adaptation and regeneration. Yeah. So um, we go from yeah, a pro-inflammatory um, to activating um, you know, satellite cells and starting to replenish or regrow that that damaged tissue um yeah. and this will this will take a bit of time so we get an increase in um you know growth factors and, and a whole whole range of things that in turn means that recovery is going to come back to you know we're going to recover but we're also going then to then carry on to adapt so yeah. you know that whole process has to occur in order for us to see that adaptation that we want from exercise and so the way that I think about this, man, and I don't know if it's a fair way to think about it, but I've always sort of thought about it as you've got a house that's damaged or, you know, like a, a wing of the house might have been burnt or broken down or, you know, something's, something's ruined, a piece of the house, right? Before you can build on that site, I always think of it as you have to clean up the mess that's left over, right, to be able to rebuild. So if you've had a piece of your house that's burnt, you've obviously got to rip away all the burnt material, you know, strip it right back before you can actually start to build again, like, is that a fair way to think of the inflammatory process that we're ripping away the dead wood sort of thing? Yep. And that allows us to have the space, to have the foundation, to actually be able to then start rebuilding on top of that. Because if you just tried to build over the dead wood, it's not going to be a very good structure, right? Is that no, fair? That, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. You've got to clear that site. Otherwise, well, I don't know what would happen otherwise. Probably you just <laughs> end up with, you may just end up with scar tissue, potentially, yeah. I suppose, and, um, and non-functional tissue. Yeah, which you know, so no, you're you're absolutely right, and I guess if your house is old, mm. um, and you're doing that work, well, you might as well make it a little bit better, yeah, which is potentially your adaptation, right? Yeah. So you know, the the new wing's going to be up to modern standards. Yeah, you're not going to use the old, you know, I don't know, <laughs> rubbish material, um, yeah, asbestos and whatnot. You're gonna, <laughs> you know, gonna use something proper. So absolutely. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's so that's an essential process. Now, that uh, when we come back to our, our mod modalities of recovery, particularly around muscle damage, because that's that's the area that everybody plays on 
they, they mm-hmm. as you said before, it's this exaggeration almost. Oh my goodness, you've got this inflammatory response. It's eating yeah. away at your muscle. We don't want that to happen. And you've got this elevation of this thing that's making your muscle sore. We better do something about it. Um, most, I think most modalities are targeting that infl- inflammatory process, trying yeah. to stop or slow down what's going on. Um, yeah. Probably all that does is delays things. It's still going to happen. It has to happen. It's just prolonging the inevitable, I suppose, or possibly limiting how much secondary damage you get. But it's really hard to know how much secondary damage you would have naturally got anyway. You know, Um, and there's been been a couple of studies uh, or review articles that, that would question the actual amount of secondary damage that contributes to the overall sort of muscle damage. So it could uh, be pretty negligible. It, it could, it could well be. Yeah. yeah so yeah. if it is, then we're, we're paying a lot of attention to something that doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. And potentially yeah. having a detrimental effect on our ability to adapt. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so if, I think if we think about now the types of modalities that we, that, that are common, um, you know, compression garments, um, mm. I don't think they're as common as they were, let's say, 10 years ago when you used to see people going to the warehouse and, you know, compression garments, top to tail, you know, head to toe, skins and that sort of stuff. Um, I've, I've still got my skins in my drawer from probably like 10 years ago. I used yep. like my, my main place where I'd use those was on the plane. Because oh, yeah. I, you know, yep. like you'd get, re- I remember when John and I got to Russia, we both couldn't see our ankles, like, you know, yep. um, so I was like, right, I need to actually make sure I'm wearing something to stop that type of swelling, you know, like. <laughs> and that's, and that's a fair use, you know, um, my, my father had, um, I don't know how many years ago it was, got this flesh eating disease in his lower leg and had most of his um, calf cut out um, to, to stop basically losing his leg. Um mm. They did a skin graft, and he had to wear this compression garment that was specifically made in Germany for him. And it was, uh, you know, I think it cost something like seven thousand dollars or something ridiculous, you know. And, and so that there are genuine cases where compression is going to be useful. Yeah, I don't see the evidence for it as a tool to help muscle damage. Uh, so what there's... what would the mechanism be that people say? Why should it be helping? Is it just a reduction in swelling? Is that Redu- the main thing it's targeting? Reduction in swelling. Um, yeah. But they also believe that it has some sort of, um, it, it reduces inflammation as well through yeah. some some kind of relationship with swelling, I guess. Um, yeah. Potentially aiding um, blood flow, yeah. aiding venous return, this sort, of, this sort of thing. There's been a couple of studies. The first study, um, I, I believe um, Bill Kramer probably did, that showed compression garments were actually beneficial when the muscle was damaged. Now they they used custom made, very specifically fitted compression garments, nothing off the shelf, right? So, yeah. Um, and you have to ensure that the amount of pressure is sort of graduated, so it, it differs, yeah. you know, up up the leg, and it needs to be specific you know, specific pressure in different locations. So those who aren't familiar, Matt, I just want to go back there a little bit because you mentioned about venous return. And for some people, that might not be something they're familiar with. But essentially, when you pump the blood out, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Matt, I haven't looked at this for a while. But basically, you pump the blood out through your arteries, and that's done because the pressure at the heart basically is forcing that blood out. But when the blood returns to your heart from your extremities, essentially, veins don't really have like a 
uh, inbuilt sort of pump or pressure system, right? They're done basically mm -hmm. from the muscular pressure or the pressure that's in that system pushing the the blood back past some valves, which it then can't head any further back. So it essentially slowly moves through the veins and returns to your heart. If your muscles are active, obviously there's pumping happening because the muscles are active and that's going to force the blood back anyway, right? Yes. So yep. the graduation yep. would basically mean that we're kind of, I guess we've got more pressure at the extremities so that it's pushing it through the valves that are in your veins so that it ends up, I guess, fast tracking it back to the heart. Yeah. I always think of that though, like, well, if the muscle pump is the main thing, you know, like if I'm, if I'm, you know, contracting my arms is going to be the thing that's going to send it back, you know, like thinking, um, you know, how a tennis player might be, you know, in between sets, they're kind of moving a little bit the whole time. They're never stopping fully, right? They don't go lie down on the ground and just stay there and let the blood Pulled. No. They're moving around, which is basically forcing the blood back. You know, I don't know why I chose tennis as, a, as an example, but you know, that's a sort of thing, right? There's always mm. some small activity which is helping to return that blood. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's you know, think about when you guys went to went to Russia. Um, you're on a long haul flight, just jiggling your legs or or doing seated calf raises or something is going to be enough unloaded mm. to to activate that muscle pump. It yeah. doesn't take yeah. an awful lot, so getting up and going for a walk or doing some standing calf raises probably probably enough really you know we, we used to do that a little bit actually once we got kind of a bit more you know familiar with traveling was or especially me anyway Jono was probably a bit bigger so he's a bit more of a pain if he was moving around the cabin but you know like you'd be I'd be walking around I'd take a foam roll with me so I could just roll my legs out and just feel nicer and actually get some you know random movements yeah. and during my flight to sort of you know I guess foam rolling probably actually forces blood too potentially um, yeah because yeah, it would push right. it back past those veins which we're talking about but that's another <laughs> another yeah. thing um, but that's kind of the thing is like I sort of thought oh well how are some ways that we could help to prevent this well I'll go for some walks like I'll walk around the cabin a few times every hour or yep. as you mentioned do some calf raises or sit at the back of the plane and you know literally actually do calf raises at the back of the plane or some lunges or something that just got the muscles moving and that was always I found at least really helpful for me and I've probably done that even in my everyday mm. travel like you know I think when Sash and I went to America I was probably that weird guy you know wandering around the plane all the time because I, I didn't want to end up being like uncomfortable for too long a time at the other end obviously you're still going to feel average but you know that movement I think sort of helped yep. with stopping some of those things what's the anyway, same I if, think you sit at, sit at, if you sit at your desk for hours at end you're going to you're going to get some pulling in the in the lower body you know, yeah. um, and it's why we use an active recovery between high intensity intervals. Yeah. You don't do a sprint, have all the blood redistributed to the lower body and then just stand, stand still. Yeah. You're going to get this big decrease in blood pressure and you're, you're increasing your risk of fainting. So you always walk around movement, jog. Yeah. You know, a little bit of movement's going to tick a lot of boxes. Um, so I, yeah, in terms of compression garments, I don't think there's, there's probably a couple of studies that show that there may be some benefits. They're very specific around the type of compression they've used. For the most part, I don't think it's it's worthwhile. Um, uh, the other the other thing that's very popular, I see it on Facebook all the time. People trying to sell me um, various ice baths. Yeah. Uh, for, for whatever reason. Um, yeah, and I mean that's not helped by social media and people like Kevin Hart and other people that just love doing interviews and in, in ice baths. Uh, <laughs> it's massive at the moment, to be honest, the, Matt. Like everyone's having an ice bath. Like, and I always look at it and I'm like, this is so random. But um, obviously, we're talking from a complete recovery perspective today as well, right? Because I think, you know, maybe you can make a case for some mental toughness type stuff. Like, you know, oh, I did something hard to start my day, or I felt better after I got out of it. Like, those are probably valid 
reasons to do yep. it. Yep. But from a muscle recovery perspective, what does it what does it show us? Um, I guess if we talk about sort of cold water immersion, going into you know a, a cold a cold bath, um, it's shown to maybe have a positive effect on how sore your muscles feel. So have a an L, what's that analgesic effect? So the muscles don't feel as sore as they would otherwise, and that makes yeah. That makes sense, you know. Um, if you, yeah, it's sort of numbing, numbing the area, right? And yeah. I, I've talked to I talked to someone who worked with um, horses a few years ago. Uh, one of our students actually, she was a uh, a trainer. She worked in Ireland, and um, we're talking about ice and you know recovery and things like that. And they they ice the legs of of horses um, so that they can sort of push them a bit harder. Yeah. So it's that remove the sensation of pain um when you think about it that might also have an effect on tendon compliance and connective tissue and it may mean that they get some sort of benefit out of out of that mm -hmm. as well but they they use it so that the horse isn't as sore yeah. so it, it can it can continue to run etc um so the the research suggests that yeah jumping in something cold is going to make you not not as sore afterwards it's not going to yeah. be particularly comfortable during um, the research shows that that's doing that is not going to improve your recovery of your strength. Yeah. So there's no benefit to do that after heavy resistance exercise when your muscles are sore thinking I'll be able to get back in the gym faster. That's yeah. And perform, you might be able to get back in the gym faster because you're not as sore. Yeah. But your ability to produce the same amount of force isn't going to be enhanced or, or, you know, sped up in terms of recovery. Um, there's there's a bit of research around its use in things like tournaments around um, sports matches and things like that. And some of the studies suggest that doing having an ice bath after, you know, a game of sevens, for example, or or some sort of sport, might have a, a benefit to functional measures. So things like mm -hmm. speed, power, um, jumping, and that type of thing. So that might be in that situation it might be worthwhile using an ice bath um, yeah and then in terms of inflammation there's no and this is this is really what they're thinking we're targeting that inflammation we're slowing down blood flow we're going to limit inflammation um there's there's no no strong evidence to suggest that that's actually happening that yeah. it doesn't doesn't change that inflammatory response um so what about what out in the long term then, Matt? So you've mentioned this in like a short term acute type scenario. Yep. So if I'm going to use this because you mentioned it might reduce my pain, which might make it easier to get back in the gym. Like, have we seen any advantages in weeks in terms of, oh, I've got more hypertrophy, I've got more muscle growth or I've got stronger over an eight week block or whatever it might be? Have we seen anything to support or negate that? Uh, no. So there was, a couple of years ago, there was a uh, a review a meta-analysis done, which is a review of all the research on the area. Yeah. And they, they found that using ice therapy, you know, cold water therapy, um, ice baths regularly, um, so after most training sessions, um, it actually decreases the adaptations that you get from your training. Yeah. So it's having a detrimental effect because um, it, it must be upsetting so, some part of that inflammatory process that we talked about previously. Yeah. Um, so... It's inhibiting muscle growth 
it's potentially um, inhibiting the adaptations for within the muscle that lead to an increase in strength. Now, of course, with strength exercise, you're also getting some neural adaptations. It's not going to have a detrimental effect on that, but yeah. if you're training, you want neural and sort of hypertrophic, yeah, you know, peripheral both. adaptations. So, um, yeah, it's it looks like if you're doing it regularly, which seems to be what's being proposed by all of these companies, jump in at every, every after every time yeah. you train, you're probably blunting any adaptation that you that you would expect, really. So, if, if someone likes an ice bath then and still wants to get their gains the recommendation would be don't do it after training. Like, no, you know, if, if you no. want to do it as like a wake me up in the morning type thing yep. because you get a mental benefit from that, then go for yep. it. But you wouldn't recommend it for after training yep. then unless it's like a training camp scenario or a tournament scenario. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the key. Uh, and when we've talked about this previously, I, I mentioned this thought of periodizing your recovery modalities like we do yep. for training and all the rest of it. It really depends what you're trying to recover from and and what what the outcome from recovery should be. So if you were just look, let's take rugby, for example, and you've got a game on Saturday, you probably go to the gym a couple of times a week during the season, but you're training Tuesday, Thursday nights and then training playing again on Saturday. What you're trying to do is you're trying to recover from the game so that you can train properly during the week and then play again. We're not specific during the sports season. We're not specifically training for adaptation. We're, yeah. we're we're training more skill aspects, tactical skill aspects. We're training for performance. So the use of some of these recovery modalities that might inhibit adaptation could probably be used in that situation because yeah. they might speed up your recovery after the game. And it your doesn't matter your perception of recovery. Your perception of recovery, and yeah. but there's also those those studies that show that it might aid recovery of sprints and and yeah. jumps and things like that. Um, so you may be able to use it in that situation, but in the off season, using the rugby analogy again, you're training to get adaptations. Yeah. You want to be getting bigger, faster, stronger for the next season. Yeah, you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't use these modalities then because they're likely to inhibit those adaptations that you're getting, mm. right? So you need to think carefully about what you're training for. And, and it's not a, not a you don't think, I'm going to use ice bars year round, or I'm not going to use, um, I don't know, a blueberry smoothie after yeah. every training session. Because there's lots of nutritional stuff as well that's showing that it has a beneficial effect on recovery, but there's also that potential to inhibit our, our adaptation. Yeah, uh, and yeah. that has that hasn't been looked at. We don't know if you have a blueberry smoothie after so every that's kind of extrapolating what we've seen in the southern literature on a similar sort of mechanism, yeah. you know, into another field. Yeah, yeah. Because we know we know blueberries. We know, um, I mean, purple foods are a really good example. You know, um, cherries, blueberries, black currants, um, probably purple raspberry, probably purple kumara. Um, yeah. Red grapes. There's a whole a whole range of foods. These all sound like really nice things, Matt. To be honest, they're all my sort of favourite, probably fruits and vegetables. To yep. be fair, <laughs> and they're and they're really good for moderating inflammation yeah. and blood flow and helping recovery. We don't know enough to say that they might actually have a detrimental effect on on adaptation. adaptation. Yeah, and it's quite enough. funny to kind of have to have that lens on this, like. 
it's so easy to make it black and white and be like, oh, I trained yesterday, I did this, and I felt a bit better when I was in the gym today or two days later. So therefore, I'm always going to do this thing. But then you're looking at it from a pure, how did I feel and how could I perform on this day? Whereas the adaptation is so much deeper than that. Like, mm. that's trying to get you to a higher level than what you're able to do before. So, yeah, it's it's quite hard to kind of change that thinking because we are such a you know species we think right here right now what can i do um and it's really hard for us to kind of take that step back and think okay in eight weeks what would i be like if i didn't do that thing right like it's yeah it's that, quite challenging right. yeah but i i think and i i don't want to put people off eating all of those good <laughs> they're incredibly nutritious <laughs> probably foods. a whole lot more benefits yeah. than just this thing for, from course, eating of those course foods. there are yeah 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 and and their effects are going to be mainly um, when there's this really almost out of control inflamm inflammatory response that we tend to get when we do significant, re you know, the damage protocols. That we talked about that, yeah. you know, the last one we talked about alcohol. We're going to the extreme. The inflammatory response is going to be not out of control, but it's going to be beyond what you Why would normally see after you're doing a squat workout or whatever. Um, so that, I guess... We can step back and we can think if I'm in a situation where I'm going to have this really significant inflammatory response, maybe you're going in to do something. I don't know. You've started, um, I don't know, bloody Smolov or so, you know, starting to do some crazy, kind of, yeah, some <laughs> crazy new, yeah. you know, new um, block of training. May and the initial phase of that is going to bring about a significant, like a really high inflammatory response. Maybe then you do some of this stuff yeah, initially. Yeah but not for the whole duration. I mean, it's, who would know? I mean, it's when you start thinking about it, it's like, boy, there's so many interactions and, and things, you know. Um, but I, I would say if you are training normally and um, you get a moderate level of muscle damage, which you would normally expect from heavy training, then eating, you know, red red and purple foods is is probably perfectly fine yeah, yeah. I, I would say it's probably always almost always going to be perfectly fine and probably I, recommended I to eat so. lots of different colored foods absolutely <laughs> whereas jumping in a bath uh, of ice water yeah not, not when you do training. that potentially yeah, yeah. maybe for yeah. a week or something like that when that yeah inflammatory processes coming and that's down. probably when like when i think back to my use of ice bath i think i mentioned this to you last time after our last episode was um again always talking about john i probably should get him on the podcast um we you know we would do that right before the tournaments right in our last couple of weeks of training so you've kind of already got all your adaptations at that stage it's about how do you feel and how can you perform so i wasn't doing that intentionally um at that time for that reason like it was a it was oh this thing's cool and it's shown to have mm. some effect or potentially shown to have some effect you know this is quite early on in the research phase if we think 10 years back um but oh it might help me recover or it might help me feel better you know for the tournament and then i'm going to get my last few sessions and obviously when you've got a powerlifting tournament coming up what is really really important is how you perceive those weights to be moving so if you're doing an opener session it's like well i felt better doing that because i was more you know recovered from this previous session oh this is awesome like i now i'm going to be confident going into the meet which is really really important when you're chucking 600 pounds plus on your back right so yeah yeah, yeah so, so is there yeah. anything else you wanted to touch on there matt with these sort of modalities um, I, I guess if, if you are going to use ice baths, then the, the water should be between 11 and 15 degrees. Yeah. And you'd stay in it for 15 minutes. That's what the research suggests as the optimal for protocol. Yeah. yeah, for recovery. So if you do decide that there is a time and a place for it in your own routine, that's the kind of, that's going to be the most effective. I, I, 
you're probably not far off tap water, I would have thought. Um, in winter, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know what tap water is, probably about 12 degrees, possibly, cold tap water. Yeah. So you probably don't need to add ice. I thought it had to be under 10. Uh, the, the stuff I've looked at recommended, you know, um, 11 to 15. Yeah. yeah, okay, okay. And I guess I, if you've got, if you, if you do have ice in that bath as well, the temperature for that first couple of centimetres of the water might be quite cold, but actually probably by the time you get a bit deeper, it's it doesn't not need that to be cold. four degrees or anything stupid like that, you know. There's, yeah. there's quite a difference between how that's going to feel. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess in terms of recovery, the only other big thing is um, is protein. Yeah. You know, which um, is probably overhyped. I mean, protein's yeah. essential. Um, yeah, and we talked yeah. about that anabolic window previously where it's not – you don't have to have to eat a cow within half an hour of um, training, you know, to, to make sure you grow. Um, but pro, yeah, protein has been shown to enhance recovery, particularly protein and carbohydrates to, to enhance mm. recovery from muscle damage. Um, and, and that's probably around 20 grams again, which sort of optimizes that. You're talking in that initial window, eh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, with, yeah. Within, I mean, most of the studies have either, you've, you've fed them, within half an hour to an hour of, of doing the, the damaging exercise. Um, yeah. And that one off by itself, and that could be as, as milk, or it could yeah. be as a, as a whey protein, or even a, um, a plant-based protein will do the same Any thing. It doesn't yeah. really matter, to be honest. Yeah. Um, that's going to have that, that benefit. Um, but it's not necessarily due to an increase in protein synthesis. There's a recent study to show that Protein synthesis is is pretty well maximal after exercise, yeah. and taking additional protein on top of that doesn't, uh, particularly eccentric exercise, it doesn't actually increase the amount of protein synthesis that's occurring. Is that over a long term time frame, like over a couple of days, or is that? Yeah, so that was over yeah, over yeah. over um, sort of seventy two to ninety six hours, I think. Because I remember that was one of the big limiters when they used to like looking at some of that research quite early on was I'd look at like a six hour window and this was where I think that anabolic thing came in right and you'd feed one group at it was six to eight hours whatever it was however long that time frame was but you'd feed one group at 30 minutes or within 30 minutes you'd feed the other group at two hours but because you're only looking at it for like a you know six to eight hour window well obviously the one that took it earlier has longer time for that protein synthesis to occur compared to the other yeah. one which withheld it like yeah, yeah, it was kind of like, oh, well, that's a limitation actually of this window that you measured it for. And if we looked, extrapolated that out or looked further on, it would eventually, you know, come to be similar because you've got. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm pretty sure this this study just fed fed the participants protein after after eccentric exercise. And then they just tracked protein synthesis back through yeah. for that longer period of time. And um, they found that there was there was no benefit. To, to taking the protein on top. Well, there was there was a benefit, sorry, but it wasn't because of muscle protein synthesis. Oh, okay, what, okay. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's not because of, yeah, you're not speeding up the recovery of the the, the damage. It, well, you are, but it's not through growing new, not through what <laughs> most people would think about, yeah. you know, because we associate drinking, taking protein for, with protein synthesis. What they're suggesting is that it actually has an effect on um, the inflammatory process. Oh, and may, okay. may um, change the um, the activation of leukocytes, which are one of those well, those proteins we talked about coming to that site and helping clean up and whatnot. Um, yeah. So yeah, that that's interesting in itself, I suppose. Um, so yeah, protein um, after exercise is a, is a good thing. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so I guess that's, yeah, that's probably the, you mentioned at the start about, you know, after a session, especially if you've got something coming up, that it's important to get your rehydration, um, your carbohydrates on board, and obviously your protein on board. And that's probably your biggest boxes to tick in terms of, uh, you know, putting yourself in the best position to recover. Um, what about the likes of sleep? Like how important is that? Is there any research that sort of had participants not sleep as well after muscle damage that's shown any impact or just anything else to do in that field? Because I know sleep's another big thing people look at for recovery. I mean, and as a dad, um, sleep's not always optimal. You see you see these optimal sleep routines or pre-bed routines. I'm like, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sleep does have an effect on recovery. Um, you know, the... the um, Obviously, it's when we tend to it is when we tend to recover, whether it's just from daily stresses or not. You know, we get this increase in growth hormone and things while we're sleeping. Um, and, and if you're not getting enough sleep, good quality sleep, you might get enough. But if it's not good quality, if it's broken, yeah. um, that can be that can definitely be detrimental to your to your recovery. Yeah. Um, so that would be that would be alongside your nutrition, sleep would be would be another big thing yep, you know okay um, yeah and you don't need an app to track it or anything like that you know you know don't go to bed with your phone um <laughs> or if you do have it on some sort of function where it turns itself off a certain time and make sure the room's dark you know yeah. it's setting yourself up for for the best possible sleep i suppose um yeah, yeah so so there's definitely um some good benefit around quality sleep as well um so if I, could choose, if I could choose to have a good sleep or jump in an ice bath what's going to make me feel better the next day <laughs> oh, i would think of sleep probably yeah i, I it's really kind of a redundant it. question but i think we always think about the little things rather than thinking about the big things right like it's easy to look yeah. at oh, i'll jump in the ice bath for 10 minutes after my exercise oh but i didn't think about eating a high quality diet i didn't think about having a good sleep like you know that's, focus that's on right. these big rocks before you focus on the sand you uh, the little the little rocks you know like did yeah. did right yep don't jump on board a fad when you're not <laughs> getting everything else right yeah yeah yeah, it's like taking sleep. a protein shake with a shit diet. Like, yeah, <laughs> if you just yeah. sort your diet out first, you could probably actually get a lot of that protein without that. But hey, yep. if you're wanting it for convenience or for what, forever, whatever it is, like, sure, do that for those things. But there's probably other ways you can get that that are cheaper and easy. Well, maybe not cheaper, but uh, just as you know, just as simple and can be part of your everyday diet. Well, there, it's easy. They are easy things. You know, eating eating clean. Uh, it's not hard in a Western diet to get enough protein. Yeah. You know, we probably overdo how much protein That's probably we the other thing, get away with. Matt, you know? what would what would be a good target for someone? Like if we're thinking someone who's training regularly is often getting muscle, or, you know, might have, be familiar with muscle damage and wants to be able to recover better from their sessions, what would a good protein amount be? Would it be sort of two grams per kg or around that figure? Like that, that would be the upper, looking at? yeah, that would be the upper limit, I think. 1.6 okay. yeah. to, to two. And yeah. that's, that's going to, so that, that covers the recommendations for resistance exercise and cardiac like um aerobic yeah 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 so you know so for someone uh, like myself 80 kilos that's looking probably somewhere between what 140 to 160 grams of protein a day ish yep yep yeah yeah not too hard to get probably nah uh, i don't think i have to think too much about about that if i want i think if i want to get to the two sometimes that'd be when i'd need to actually because i haven't tracked for a while but that's when i'd need to probably be having a protein shake or a protein bar or something but otherwise it's kind of like it's simple yep. enough to get it in with because you, you, a few you, dairy products, which is yeah. always my go-to, being raised on a dairy farm. <laughs> yep. Well, it's easy to easy to do if you if you're doing that. But you know, bread has got a reasonable yeah. amount. Bread's the 
the number one source of protein for New Zealanders. You know, that's where most the people get their well, protein from. Check on know? the back of your packet as well, because I've found like when you're looking at the different types of bread that you can get, there can be quite a big difference between, you know, whatever variety of, you know, because there's so many different types of bread these days. If you have a look on the back of it, you can actually sometimes see that, oh, well, this one's got another like three or four grams per slice, which can make quite a big difference. It can, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, that would be, you know, 1.6 to to two, I think, um, yeah. for for everybody that's doing any form of exercise. Well, I shouldn't say everybody. I shouldn't be that. Um, uh, older people might need a little bit more potentially. Yeah. I think that's what the research suggests. So probably not that much more. They they might be at two, and most other people might be sort of one point six, one point eight, some something yeah. like that. You know, um, it's not. Yeah, I don't think it's that hard to get um, without without using supplements. Um, supplements are just, you know, protein powers are just um, convenient. I guess that's probably the other one thing to touch on before we do wrap up. I know we've been going over an hour now, so I, I don't want to hold that's you right. too long. Um, but with with that, that might be the other thing where people are kind of being marketed at as well. Like ice baths are obviously massive at the moment, and I guess it depends what you're using it for as to the application, as we've discussed. Um, we've obviously talked about nutrition and sleep being important and probably the biggest things that you can tick off. Um, but sometimes there'll be like different supplements that will say they're going to impact your recovery or they've got some special ingredient like a, I don't know, you've mentioned about berries and stuff. So sometimes there'll be like a extract from, you know, this such and such fruit that pops up and then, you know, is here this, this year and the next year you don't hear about it again. But like, is there any merit to some of those things? Like, oh, here's the, here's the purple, as you mentioned, purple fruit extract or something like, do some of these things have legs? Uh, some some of them do, um, and some of them are untested. Um, yeah. You know, mushrooms seem to be all over the place at the moment. Um, yeah. They're very popular. Very little um, research around recovery in yeah. that sense. And, and mushrooms are being marketed to help you sleep and to, to for all sorts of things, I suppose. Um, yeah, so there's... There's been a lot of research done on a lot of different compounds, I suppose. Yeah. Um, we did a review a couple of years ago, um, and and looked at as many as we as we could really. And the ones that stood out with a significant amount of support behind them in terms of recovery from muscle damage, um, fish oil. Mm -hmm. So there's a good amount. But there's also some thoughts around fish oil possibly has a detrimental effect on adaptation as well. So coming so back to again it, that anti-inflammatory thing. Yeah. Yep. So that and that's if you've got inflammatory issues, then fish oil is fantastic, right? Um, what if else? You don't, then it might not be a good thing to have all the time. But yeah, there's yeah, yeah there's probably a dose relationship as well. Um, potentially, yeah. there's probably no harm in taking a fish oil tablet. I mean, yeah. I don't eat fish, so my diet would be incredibly low on omega um, fatty acids so um that's that's important um what have we got um tart cherry is is has got a lot of research behind it so um i know there's there's a company in the in new zealand that promotes um cherry juice i can't remember but um there's there's some good research behind tart cherry it's also juice. meant to be quite good for sleep isn't it yes yep. yeah yeah um pomegranates extracts there's a bit of evidence for um vitamin c and vitamin e there's really no no benefits taking them for recovery oh, wow. yeah um, blueberries and black currants so those sort of purpley kind of berries um small amount of support so i would say a moderate level of support for those yeah um, 
But again, all of these are probably impacting the anti-inflammatory response. Potentially. Potentially. I mean, that's, okay. that's, it depends that, on the compound. They, they, they all have um, an anti-inflammatory and um, yeah, an anti-inflammatory role and they yeah. might have an effect on oxidative stress as well. So okay. they have the potential to reduce that inflammation, I suppose. Um, yeah. And again, that might be a good thing at certain times. It might be a bad thing at other times. Then you've got, I guess you've got things like um, ginseng, kava, yeah. um, ginger, um, ashwagandha. These are these are quite these are the sort of herbal extracts that you're going to see pop up from time. Ashwagandha is, you know, very popular. There's no, um, there's nothing to support those any of those mm -hmm. compounds, um, even though they've been used for a long time. There may be some benefits for other things because they've been used in um, Chinese and Asian medicine for a long time. Yeah. The one that shows um, reasonable potential is um, curcumin. Oh, what's that? So that um, that curcumin or curcumin, curcumin, I think it's pronounced. Um, that comes from. I'm just trying to check. Um, that comes from turmeric. Ah, uh, okay. So turmeric yeah. powder gives it that yellow colour. Yeah. So there's a reasonable amount of research to show that this that one may, is quite a commonly be, used one too. Eh? That may be beneficial. So yeah. probably out of the more common herbal and nutritional things, berries to a certain extent, um, your fish oils and um, curcumin. So what you're yeah. telling me, Matt, is I should blend up a smoothie with a big slice of salmon in it for the fish oils. Yep. I should chuck a scoop of turmeric in there and smash up a whole bunch of blueberries and blackberries. Yep. Or black currants, sorry. Sounds delicious. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, and some protein and some carbohydrate. So I'll put some oats in there and I'll put some um <laughs> some whey protein in there. Yeah. Well, and, I don't need the whey protein because I've got the salmon. Yep. And take have some caffeine as well. So put some Diet Coke in there. <laughs> That sounds yeah. horrendous. <laughs> no. I guess the other thing that's that's very popular is um, CBD, you know, yeah. cannabidiol, um, or however you want to pronounce that. So the the non um, psychoactive compound from marijuana. Um, yeah. There's there's a lot of hype around that, and the research doesn't support its use for recovery okay. um, whatsoever. Um, it's got some some new, um, some medical benefits, but there's been no research to show that it's going to speed up um, recovery or decrease DOMS or anything. And I guess uh, that's probably one thing for us to be real clear here as well as like the stuff you're talking about is specific to recovery from exercise. Like it's not, you know, we're not talking about any other application of any of these things. It's what that, that no, research is showing. Exactly. If you've got mental yeah. health issues, then CBD might be great. Or if you've got sleep issues or if you've got epilepsy, that, a lot of the stuff can be used in different Other settings. applications. We're yep. being very specific here. Um, yeah. And again, the extent at which it may inhibit your recovery or benefit your recovery will be an individual thing, and it may not be significant enough to impact yeah. you, or it might make a massive difference. I would say, yeah, yeah. give it a go. <laughs> yeah, Pass, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, in proper quantities. <laughs> yeah, like a training program. You don't know yeah. what's going to work until you've given it a go. Yeah. or a diet or anything so yeah um, but but probably i guess the other side there though is be careful if you feel better in the short term it doesn't mean it's always going to help you adapt in the long term no, so absolutely. have a bit of yep. caution with, with just looking at how you feel yep and yeah. if you need to feel better in the short term that's great yeah 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 um, yeah. Definitely. yeah yeah so, that, yeah 
Pair it off, as you mentioned. Um, and then I guess the only other thing that I guess some of these papers you've mentioned, like if you could send me through those links, I could chuck them into the description. If if there's there, I think you mentioned there was one around the like recovery modalities. It might have been the ice bath one, I think you said. Yep. Um, like a bit of a meta analysis, and then one around the um these different extracts and stuff. If I could have those, that'd be awesome, and I can chuck them into the chuck some links into the description. That'd be cool. And I um, think I was going to do that for the alcohol stuff that I and I haven't done. I, I popped yet. it in. I popped. Oh, you it up did. There. You yep. found that. Yep. That's yep. cool. I found your review okay. article and chucked it in there. Cool. Um, but yeah, I, was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we wrap up, Matt? I think that's that's a lot. I mean, I could yeah. keep, keep going all day, but we've <laughs> kind of touched on the the common ones. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I guess if anyone has any specific ones they're interested in, I can probably get you back on at some stage, have a chat, or if something changes in the literature and there's something that you know is suddenly found to be magical, we can always come back and kind of chat about that at some stage too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the muscle damage side of things, people are throwing all sorts of different remedies yeah. at it, you know, modalities, trying to trying to cure it. But um, I think ultimately with muscle damage, I, I guess this is the, the final little bit, um, you do adapt naturally anyway. You get a repeated bout effect. So the next time you do exercise, it's not as sore. The damage is not as great. Yeah. So just harden up and, and you know, work through it. Don't feel, yeah. yeah. A bit of pain is not a bad thing. It's, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not going to, it's not the end of the end of the world. Yeah. It's quite natural. If you're training properly, there's going to be some pain and um, yeah, stick with it. And that's, I guess that's, that's the thing. Some people find exercise painful. If you're a bad personal trainer and you damage, you produce a lot of muscle damage in your client's first session, they shouldn't come back to you. Probably, you know, mm. you're an idiot. Um, particularly as your business is going to be based on re repeated, you know, um, you know, return visits by people. Um, yeah, just progressive overload, I suppose. Yeah, you know, and good go diet, nuts. good yep. diet, good sleep. Yeah, big stuff. <laughs> it's boring that that's not what people want to hear people don't want to hear that there's not a magic thing they can do to make them recover and adapt faster uh i think that's called steroids <laughs> yeah that's that's probably the uh i think one time was it was it steve standard said something along the lines i think it was steve um that professor steve standard said um most things that are legal don't work yeah. basically so if it's if it's legal and it's on the shelf the chances are it's not going to do a wondrous thing for your recovery um, yep. if it's not on the shelf and it's illegal aka steroids or pharmaceutical products you know that's probably where the real real you know big percentage benefits last so yeah absolutely <laughs> yep no that's that's very true absolutely. anyway i think we should probably leave it there before we get that's on good. to you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but no. cycles and things. So, yeah, well, I mean, you'd be you'd be asking the wrong person with me, so we probably need a different guest yeah. to figure that out. And I don't think it's really apt for my audience. So, uh... <laughs> no, and I don't, I don't know enough about that either, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> no. Awesome, Matt. Thanks for covering that, and I, you know, I yep. appreciate that. I know recovery, and I think it was cool because we kind of got into, you know, talking about some of the actual what does this thing mean? You know, what is recovery? What are we talking about? What is the difference between recovery and fatigue? Um, what is the difference between recovery and adaptation? Kind of these big things that people blend into this one thing that they can package and sell and sell you a product that, you know, supposedly helps it. Um, but it's kind of good to kind of look at it through these different lenses and look at those applications and kind of also that periodized approach or when may it be suitable and when might it not be optimal. So thanks for coming on and sharing your expertise with us, Matt. Really appreciate it. No, pleasure. Thanks, Hayden. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Stronger Dads Collective podcast. 
If you found anything within this episode valuable, please be sure to share it with someone else who you think might benefit from its content. Don't forget to give the podcast a rating on whatever platform you're listening to. If you want to follow along with what I'm up to, you can follow me on Instagram at hjp underscore stronger dads. Right, we'll see you on the next one.